Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over at The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on the Light the Fuse podcast, he and I are recording this week's show on Thursday, May 25th, 2023, which... Eh, for us, Drew, that's a little earlier than usual, but Mr. Taylor is the hardest working man in Hollywood, and our our goal here is to to try to get you a couple of days off over the long Memorial Day weekend. That's the plan. Is that actually going to happen, Drew? It's not totally going to happen, but I have my gallery nucleus uh, show tomorrow night, so that's why we're recording oh, today. Oh, cool. Which one yeah, is this? Now, yeah, again, so. we just did the one with Craig McCracken, which you were uh, lovely about sharing on, on a recent episode. Who are you with at the gallery nucleus this time around? This is the whole uh, Puss in Boots team. Oh, So everybody that right. was involved in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish... Yeah, I think there's going to be a signing of the book. So oh. I am going to, I think, talk probably for an hour with the team. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, you can get your book signed or say hello to me or whatever you want. I mean, this is too late now. People will have done it or not done it. Yeah. But um, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to getting barbecue from our favorite place <laughs> on the way home. That's really <laughs> the incentive, Jim. God, I wish I could be there for that because those guys have got to be thrilled about the overall reaction to The Last Wish, that doing a second sequel to Puss in Boots that late after the first film, not to mention the characters' appearances in the Shrek films, and to have the reaction that it did to, I mean, just to watch what happened on social media, that's got to have been thrilling. Yeah, and you know, they're not campaigning for an Oscar anymore, Jim, so hopefully they're going to be even more loose-lipped okay. about the process. All right. Well, uh, the, the next week, we'll definitely set aside the feature so you can share some of the stories they shared with you on stage. So, all right, cool. Have a great time. Now, Mr. Taylor, again, because he's out west, gets to see things early. And, in fact, I think we mentioned on the last show that you had just seen Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, but you were still under an embargo at that point. That's no longer the case, right? Yes, I can say whatever I want. I can't review it, Jim, but I can give you my thoughts. Okay, so, okay. And yeah. it, was it the Hollywood Reporter that reproduced your tweet about it? That that. Oh, uh, did they? Yeah, <laughs> there was a. Well, you suggested you'd be effusive when you were finally allowed to talk, and in your tweet, you were talking about. At the very least, Gwen Stacy's story in this thing seems to be a very big part, and seems to really move you. Yeah, it's it's. It's pretty much her movie. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. it's all Miles's movie, obviously, but uh, the Gwen Stacy stuff is really amazing, mm-hmm. both in terms of the artistry of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she lives in this kind of like pastel world that's kind of a mood ring. So mm-hmm. when she reacts, the colors of the world change, or the paint you see the paint dripping down mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But yeah, the movie has a really interesting kind of melancholy tone mm-hmm. that I was very taken by, and I thought this it was just. Wonderful because, you know, it could have just been a bunch of crazy Spider-Man mm-hmm. stuff flying around um, with no kind of emotional center. But they really they really dug deep in terms of the emotion of the characters mm-hmm. and the situation. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's a really moving, wonderful film right. that I just adored. Cool. Okay. Now, 
not allowed to review it. Obviously not allowed to spoil it. I, I just have one question because we know next March we have our sequel to Across the Spider-Verse. Beyond the Spider-Verse, right? Yes, Beyond the Spider-Verse. Yeah, next, yeah, next March. Okay, Oof. so we a cliffhanger or are we – or can, oh, we can't Jim, say. The, cli- the cliffhanger <laughs> to end all cliffhangers is this one. Yeah, <sighs> it is – you will be cheering and also, you know, shaking your fist at the screen because you want the next one right away. Oh. Um, which is not to say that this does not offer a complete kind of emotional arc, mm-hmm. but boy, there there is something that happens towards the end, Jim, that mm-hmm. you are going to be. And then the, the final image of the movie is just really powerful and really just makes you, you know, want to see all your spider friends again in the next movie um, and all the new spider people are really wonderful. Um, I really love Daniel Kaluuya's Spider-Punk. He was my favorite uh, new Spider-Man. Okay, yeah. cool. All right, again, yeah. we're going to play by the rules here. You can't review it, and we don't want to spoil it. So that arrives in theaters Thursday afternoon, the, the first preview screenings, and then uh, the Sony Pictures animation film uh, formally begins screening on Friday, uh, June 2nd. And yeah, what's kind of interesting is to watch what keeps going on with the box office projections. They were 70 to 80 million. We talked about last week how they got extra exuberant. They were were north of 100 million. And now they seem to have settled down to 85, 90. But I think some of that may actually be Sony pushing the number down because they want to be able to claim what, you know, we were so surprised when it went north of a hundred million, but okay. Yeah. I think the, the word of mouth is going to be really strong. And the, and the night that this episode goes up, I will be at the world premiere. So I will have oh. more stories next week, Jim. So, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Next week's show. I'm not talking folks. It's, it's strictly <laughs> Drew Taylor. And he'll come back with lots of news. And speaking of news, news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay. Just talking a second ago, box office projections. I think it was the Hollywood Reporter today that was talking about how both The Flash and Pixar's Elemental seem to be dealing with some box office head wound uh, wins, <laughs> not head wounds. Massive head wound, Harry Jim. There is we go. Ma- <laughs> yes, he's back. But I feel so bad for for Peter uh, Peter Solomon, who had kind of the same issue with the Good Dinosaur, but. Based on on right now, the tracking suggests that Elemental is only going to do $40 million domestic over its opening weekend, which is June 16th. And you were mentioning just last week that out in L.A., there are no Elemental billboards, you know, that everything's Little Mermaid right now because tomorrow Disney's live action version of The Little Mermaid runs into theaters. And everything I'm being told is... Tuesday of next week, they get serious about promoting Elemental. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just sort of like, calm down, we're going to be fine. It's going to do great. But again, with the, those box office projections, in the, the article that Rante in The Hollywood Reporter, they grouped Elemental with uh, uh, Peter's uh, first film, The Good Dinosaur. And, and I feel reluctant to actually say that's Peter's first film because he really ran the rescue mission on Bob Peterson's version of the, the Good Dinosaur, right? He was the guy who came through the door and basically 
got the film over the the finish line. Yeah, for a while there wasn't even a director uh, named. If you recall that, they were like, well, everybody's helping out on Good Dinosaur (laughs) to get it across the finish line. So yeah, Peter Peter was the one kind of holding the... The good dinosaur-shaped party bag at the end of the day. Well, but, yes, you know, the, it, it reminds me of – there's a story that Kirk Weiss and Gary Trousdale talk about Beauty and the Beast. I mean, same thing. The The Purdoms were directing the original non-musical version of Beauty and the Beast. And then Disney decided to go another way on that, largely based on the success of The Little Mermaid. So Kirk and Gary – had just finished doing the animated pre-show for Cranium Command. They were basically named the acting directors of, of Beauty and the Beast. And it was sort of like, you guys take the job until we find somebody who can actually do this. And Kirk compared it to, they were the cockroaches on the kitchen floor when the light got turned on. <laughs> and it was like, right, right. You know, tag, you're it. And so Kirk turned to Gary and said, well, we're the acting directors. I guess we should act like directors. And and they kept waiting for a grown-up to come in and take over the movie. And they never did. But anyway, to get back to box office projections for Elemental, what I, I felt bad about is that, especially today in the article of the trades, is they grouped Elemental, The Good Dinosaur, and Onward together. And Onward didn't do over $50 million at the box office. But come on, it, it went into theaters on what? March 6, 2020 which was basically two weeks away from the entire world shutting down because of the pandemic. And everyone was terrified to go into theaters. And I just don't think it's fair to group Onward in a low box office thing, given what it would, well, the head wounds it was going against. Through. I agree, Jim. I agree. Okay. Here, here. By the way, there is a great art of book on Pixar's Onward that was written by my co-host. I, I suggest that you check it out. Likewise, I just got my copy of The Art of Disney Pixar's Elemental this week from the very nice folks at Chronicle Books. And Drew always tells me I have to behave myself, so it's still in the shrink wrap over there. I will look at it look after and learn more about Elemental City when I actually see the film. From your position out there in L.A., much better tied into the industry than I am, what do, what do you honestly think is the problem right now with Elemental? Is it just simply Disney hasn't started the campaign? Or is it a hard film to get across in 30-second ads? You know, is it is they got the idea of Inside Out out there. What's the problem? They didn't do a good job getting out what Lightyear was. That's, so, that's you know, true. there's that. I, I actually wonder mm-hmm. if the Disney plusification of Pixar has damaged the brand somehow. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like three of the best Pixar mm-hmm. movies ever mm-hmm. were on Disney Plus, And then another really good Pixar movie came out mm-hmm. after those three and didn't do the box office that it should have. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder, Jim. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I, I've been chatting with Jim Schul recently about changing over – Paradise Pier to Pixar Pier. And Bob Weiss, the head of Imagineering, after that land opened, you have like the Incredicoaster, which is then next to Jesse's Critter Carousel, and there's like a chicken stand. Yes, the hot chicken, whatever. 
But again, what's interesting is it's from that Toy Story tune thing where, you know, the buzz. Small Fry, also directed by our favorite uh, Angus McLean. There we go. There we go. And then you continue on. There's the Toy Story Midway Mania. And then on the other side of the land, you actually have the Inside Out uh, Emotional Whirlwind. Is that what they call it? Yes. Because I I love the first name of that attraction, the Mood Swings. But evidently. That's better. That's better. (laughs) No, but but the the thing, people said that, you know, it's like, oh, that's being callous with people who have depression. So let's go with a a somewhat more emotional whirlwind, a, a somewhat more distant thing. But when they opened Pixar Pier, it did not have the attendance bump that people were hoping for. I mean, they paid all this money to put The Incredibles and Toy Story and and Inside Out into the park along with Small Fry, and, and it didn't move the needle. And Bob Weiss himself was like, wow, you know what that says is that Pixar as a brand isn't as strong as Disney thinks, that individual films that Pixar does are popular. But as a brand, maybe it's not quite as popular as Disney thought it was. So beyond that, the news that Universal uh, was the first studio this year to make it to a billion-dollar box office worldwide. Uh, That was largely in the back of Super Mario Brothers and Fast X, though Mermaid and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny will, will help Disney along. They need the help, Jim. They're really struggling right now. You know, I feel I feel for all the CEOs, Jim, that are looking at all the writers striking uh, and thinking, no, no, we're okay. By the way, this week was supposed to be the third round of layoffs. Have, have you heard anything in, in regard to specifics about where this, this supposedly third and final round of layoffs is happening? I heard a lot of the layoffs came from the maker team Um. Uh, i i think maker is pretty much done now they're closing the the century city office Mm -hmm. i think they're actually going to move back to gc3 Mm -hmm. um, in glendale which you know is my old haunt yeah yeah the the creative campus yeah oh okay yeah i've got i've got some some names that i can give you after the show but yeah it's it was pretty brutal this week i mean just whole swaths of people just gone Speaking of kind of brutal, I actually got to see your piece in the wrap about the shuttering of the Galactic Star Cruiser. And if you want a wonderful bit of behind the scenes reading, and I'm not just saying this because it quotes me once or twice, not as much as Kevin Perjurer, but that's okay. He offered actual commentary. You know, you gave me a a lot of great kind of historical Mm -hmm. nuggets, but I I thought that it was fair because I was trying to give the whole history of the project. Absolutely, absolutely. And I am a fan of the things they do over at Defunct Land, but great piece, folks. Go check it out. But pivoting back to The Little Mermaid, and of course there's been all this controversy about the the casting of, of Halle Bailey, and they're all idiots. But what's lovely is that People Magazine went to Jody Benson, the voice of the of Ariel from the original 89 animated film, and asked her about what she thought of Ms. Bailey's performance as Ariel. And Benson was nothing but gracious. She was like, look, I loved everything that she did in the film. I loved the acting. I loved the singing. I loved the pure spirit. Her beautiful love for the character comes through. It's a beautiful, beautiful performance. And then in regards to the changes that Rob Marshall and company made when they were adapting this Disney animated film to live action, Jody approved of those as well and said, look, when you look at our film, we started 
in the studio in 1986, and we were released in 89. And times change, people change, cultures change. And what matters and what is important changes. And as a studio, Disney understands that, which is why they made the adjustments to this version of The Little Mermaid that they did. It's very important to address what's going on right now in our world and then to make this version of Little Mermaid reflective of where we are right now in this generation. And she goes on to say, I do feel that Ariel's integrity as a character has been maintained. I also feel that the filmmakers put a lot of care and thought into this retelling of Disney's Little Mermaid. And I'm honestly so thrilled with the way the finished film turned out. Do you remember we were both at Animal Kingdom for that uh, Lion King, the Lion home King video or something? Yeah. yeah, and we both got to, to interview Ernie Sarbella, and Ernie is a lot like Jody. He was very generous when it came to Seth doing Pumbaa for the live action thing. But what was interesting about Ernie, but he was like, "I'm only loaning Pumbaa." <laughs> To Seth, you know, he, he's still mine. Well, uh, this the movie hasn't come out yet, but it will have come out by the time this this mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. goes live. But I have to tell you, Jim, Jody Benson is in The Little Mermaid. Really? Yes. I won't tell you who she plays, but she, you actually see her human self in the uh, in the movie. So look out for that. Am I allowed to make a guess here? Sure, sure. Okay. There's kind of a major domo housekeeper kind of a character at the... Yes, that is not her. She is just a cameo. Oh, okay. Because that would have been great. It would have been great. They they go with the same kind of like stately British guy like Eh. in the the animated movie. Okay. Well, well, no, I mean, it's sort of a female housekeeper. I think her name's Carlotta. Oh, yes. No, no. I know that character. Yeah. Okay. Jim, there's so much much stuff in this movie. Okay. I I look forward to, to, to... I hope you can see it soon so we can dive into Okay, well, uh, we'll uh, yeah. we're actually slated to see it next Tuesday. So, in theory, next week between Drew talking about the what the folks at uh, Gallery Nucleus, Puss in Boots, The Last Witch Panel, and finally also being able to fully review Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and, and now there's lots of stuff to talk about. Oh, and, and I know we mentioned this last year when it came out, but given that... Judy Benson has been such a class act about Halle Bailey. I want to remind folks that she wrote a memoir last year. Part of my world, what I learned from The Little Mermaid about love, faith, and finding my voice. Really worth reading. A surprisingly good book. Better than Don Bluth's book. Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to go there. Oh, while we're talking about The Little Mermaid, Rob Marshall and John DeLuca, who's the producer of Little Mermaid, are also out doing press. Did you see where 34 years ago they were both working in theater in New York and they went together to go see the animated Little Mermaid while they were out there working on Broadway? No. Well, should we say that, you know, that John and and Mm -hmm. Rob are life partners as well as creative partners? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was this like a was this like an early date of theirs? I don't know that part of the story, but that's kind of cool in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. But it was more about the fact that this Ron and John film had a score by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, who who they loved their Little Shop of Horrors. So it's like, oh, cool! They wrote a movie musical. Let's go check this out. On the other hand, they were talking about how Les Poissons 
didn't make it into the live action version of The Little Mermaid. And and to hear Rob talk, it's like if you remember the original movie, it's kind of a vacation away from the film. I mean, it's this crazy over the top Saturday morning almost Tex Avery scene. I saw that reasoning and I I didn't buy it. You didn't? I got to say. Okay. The movie suffers for the lack of le poisson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the lyrics of that, you know. So I stuff you with bread. It don't hurt cuz you're dead. You know, it's like it's a great song. You know, there's some lot of fun lyrics, but but at the same time, it's one thing to do it in cartoon form. It's quite another to have a guy waving around a real, you know, in a real kitchen, waving a real knife, you know, like something out of Scream. I mean, I get it. But on the other hand, uh, did you also hear that they wrote a song? Uh, and, and again, this is uh, Alan Menken and Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a song for Triton that uh, evidently they, they Javier Bardem did a great job with and they shot and... Only when they were assembling the movie, they realized that, ah, crap, this tips the hand on Triton having second thoughts about how he's been treating his daughter too soon in the story. And it just kind of undercuts the end of the film. And somebody had to get on the phone and and tell Javier that, hey, hi, (laughs) you know, we cut your song. But evidently, he was very gracious about it. I'm all for that movie not being any longer than it already was, Jim. So I have to admit, I'm a little concerned that whole hour longer than the original. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not getting the demijohn of soda going into this theater. Oh, uh, speaking of other mermaid-related stuff, I love that I, I got it right. Have you seen the Ruby Gilman clips and the ads that are being posted all over the place? around the little mermaid where they're definitely leaning into everything you know about mermaids is wrong they're terrible people i love that i love it there are more clips leaking out we've now gotten to see ruby's mom who's a realtor this just thing looks better and better every everything i see for it so i can't wait for this dreamworks animation film to come out on june 30th and since we're talking about uh universal's animation studios Have you seen the photos coming out of Universal Studios Florida for the work that's being done on Minions Land? Yeah, it looks great. I hope that, uh, you know, I get invited down there to see the Minions, the new Minions ride. Villain Con. Villain Con. Villain Con. We still don't have an opening day for it yet. But what's interesting is that the street that it's on is now going to be known as Illumination Avenue in honor of the animation studio. But but again, we come through the gate, you go through the turnstile, you're on what's known as Production Central. And I mean, it's the street where if you look all the way down to the end, you can see that painted flat for the New York Public Library. But to the left, you've got Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem, and to the right, that's where Shrek 4D and the old Universal Monsters Cafe was located. And that's all now part of... Minions land every year from roughly August to the 1st of November, that same area that we, you know, I just described is, is kind of where they do the entrance for Halloween Horror Nights that they do this sort of elaborate canopy of pumpkins. And, and this is also where they place teases for all of the major mazes that are being built that. And it was one thing to do that when this was a set of, kind of bland, generic Hollywood soundstage type buildings. But now, I mean, this is a highly themed 
family-friendly area that's really tied into Universal's best-selling, you know, IP. And it just, I'm going to be fascinated to see come August how the Halloween Horror Night decoration team for Universal Studios Florida handles this, you know, it creates that entry. Because, I mean, let's be honest here. It's not like Universal is going to back away from the river of money they make every year off of Halloween Horror Night. You know, if anything, I mean, you know, we're seeing Universal, well, hell, they're building that standalone Halloween Horror Night thing in, in Vegas. So I'm just going to be fascinated to see what happens here. What they do now that there's a Minions land and an area that they really want little kids and families to enjoy, that from August to the 1st of November has to be decorated with corpses and, and severed limbs. So, Also, uh, speaking of Universal-related information coming out of Florida that's tied to animation, did you see the photos that BioReconstruct took during his most recent flyover of the Epic Universe construction site? I don't know if they were the most recent, but that had a lot of the track for the Dragon's Coaster. That's it, exactly. For the How to Train Your Dragon's Land that will be part of Epic Universe. And, and what's interesting is that construction is far enough along that if you, you remember the film and they have those, in the, the village of Burke, they have those kind of Viking totem poles Evidently, things are far enough along in the How to Train Your Dragons Land at Epic Universe that they finished the sculpting of those totem poles and they've now begun to paint them. So, mind you, we're still two years out from the opening Epic Universe. That's still 2025 sometime. But interesting to see that coming along. And speaking of 2025, that's also when the live action version of How to Train Your Dragon is supposed to come out. I, I still wonder if the WGA strike is, is going to have an impact there. Well, the SAG strike and the DGA strike, which are also oh. percolating in the background, could oh. have an even more detrimental effect oh, if they've got a script. But God help yeah, it. Jim, you can feel the synergy coming together. <laughs> Live action movie, new <laughs> land in Florida. It's just beautiful, Jim. We love it. We love it. Okay. Now, what we were just talking about, a little concerned about when this is going to go forward. But did you see the story that, that's making the rounds about the potential casting or at least one person going into the How to Train Your Dragons live action. I mean, I saw that. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. The source was seemed a little bit mm -hmm. dubious, but go ahead, tell people. Well, all right, saying. now help me out with the name here. It's Olali Cravolo uh, from Moana. From right? Moana, yes, yes the, the young lady who voiced Moana, who ironically enough, just in the past week. Uh, Olali effectively said, nope, not coming back to play Moana, and, but I wish who, you know, I will help with the search for the, the new actress to play the role, and I wish them well. But what's kind of interesting is that she's supposedly in the running to play Astrid in the live action How to Train Your Dragon. Also, there's talk that I guess Jack Grazier, who uh, has appeared in a number of projects for Warners over the past few years, that supposedly he's up for the role or being considered for the role of Hiccup in this Dean Dubois movie. And, and by the way, speaking of Dean Dubois movies, the one that put him on the map uh, was 2002's The Animated Lilo and Sitch with Dean co-directed with Chris Sanders. And again, those two teamed up for the first How to Train Your Dragon movie. I bring up Lilo and Stitch because production of the live action version 
of of this uh, Dean DeBach Chris Sanders film is currently underway in Hawaii. And as always happens, there are people standing around the, the shoot and getting shots of the crew and the cast and that sort of thing. And did you see they were doing some scenes with the surfboard and we actually got to see the little plastic stitch doll that they're using for reference? No, we, if it was if it was at all huggable, Jim, we call those a stuffy. A stuffy? Is that what yes. they're called? Bring me yeah, the that's stuffy. Yeah, that's that's what a yes a a stuffed stand-in for a later CGI character is called a stuffy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we were just talking about. They're shooting in Hawaii. They're doing surfboard scenes that's out on the water, which makes you think about more mermaid stories, uh, especially about Ursula, which Drew and I will share when we get back from this break. When Drew and I were spitballing tonight's show, you suggested that we really should lean into some Ursula stories because Melissa McCartney's performance is Ursula in the live action A Little Mermaid, right? Yes, and also because your idea was too gruesome to do on the show. I well, all right for our future. I, I it, all right, it was okay. I, <laughs> I was I wanted to talk about deaths in Disney animated future. We're gonna do that someday. We'll do that. We'll do that. Okay, yes. maybe maybe Halloween. Maybe Halloween. Okay. Yes, yes. All right. So let's talk about how we got a musical Little Mermaid at Disney, uh, which really that story starts in in 1982. Off-Broadway with Little Shop of Horrors, right? Macon and, and Ashman write this musical version of the Roger Corman film. Everybody loves it, but it, it doesn't transfer to Broadway. What does happen is Howard uh, is approached by Marvin Hamlish. They do a musical version of the 1975 film Smile, which only runs like six weeks on, on Broadway. It closes in January of 87, by then, uh, the Little, Little Shop of Horrors movie with Rick Moranis had arrived in, in movie theaters and basically collapsed. It cost $25 million to make and only made, I want to say, 39 uh, in its theatrical release, which by Hollywood math is a failure. And so this is a guy who was kind of embarrassed at the one-two punch of the movie I worked on, on my, my hit off-Broadway show didn't connect, and my big Broadway musical didn't connect, and kind of tucked his tail between his legs and was looking for an, uh, an opportunity just to sort of get out of town. And he learned that Disney, well, uh, what was kind of interesting about the score for Oliver and Company was it was one of these things where Katzenberg was kind of holding a bake-off, so he, he had a lot of people write one song, but Howard wrote the best song. Well, yeah, he, he wrote the song that played under the title of the film, uh, Once Upon a Time in New York City. Well, Jim, should we talk about what Howard was actually brought to Disney to do? Which is very, pre you know, timely. Uh, please, because please he, do. he was adapting Tina Turner's memoir, I, Tina. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah. And that was his first job. I mean, it initially... Mm -hmm was very different. Mm. It subsequently became When a Man Loves a Woman. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Mm. Or What's Love Got to Do With It. There we what's go. What's Love Got to Do With It. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But his version was, I, I think, a little bit more mm -hmm. probably closer to the, the memoir. And I've never read it. I've never read his. Have you read his his version of the script? It's a little dark. <laughs> it's a, if you ever find it, Jim, you know okay. where to send it. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, but so that he was at Disney kind of like twiddling his thumbs he because won. that wasn't really getting yeah. movement. But he loved these animated movies. And, and as a young gay man, I think mm-hmm. growing up, he felt a lot of connection to the musicals. He did. And he did. So, yeah, he contributed this kick-ass song to, to Oliver and Company. Okay, so he's at Disney. And he's seen all of the classic Disney animated films. He's also seen the most recent ones, and which means he saw... The Great Mouse Detective, kind of the, the first film to team Ron Clements and John Musker. And he liked the movie, but he thought the use of music in The Little Mermaid, especially that one number, Let Me Be Good to You, the Henry Mancini song, he thought that was terrible. You know, it just, it was literally, it stops the movie and not in a good way. And so when he learned that Ron and John were prepping a version of The Little Mermaid as a possible animated feature, he sort of inserted himself into the equation. It's like, oh God, you guys don't understand music at all. Let me, let me help. And to Ron and John's credit, they're like, well, well okay, sure. And Howard reaches out across the country to Alan Macon and said, get your ass out to California. We're going to work on The Little Mermaid. And then from there, as Howard is working off of Ron and John's outline and they get to the Sea Witch and having just done Little Shop of Horrors and understanding that if you have a literally a big villain, a big, colorful, campy villain, it adds so much energy and so much excitement to your project. So it's like, we got to do big with the Sea Witch. And, and so do you want to talk about who originally he went to Disney and said, this is my inspiration for what we should do with the Sea Witch? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the additions that Howard made mm-hmm. um, story-wise were really important. No, they so were. They were. Before we even get to Ursula, you know, he, he turned mm-hmm. the British butler-type mm-hmm. character of Sebastian into the Caribbean he did. crab mm-hmm. that we love. Yep. But he said mm-hmm. that his inspiration for Ursula was none other than the legendary Divine, who, this is a kid's show, but if you watch Pink Flamingos, you'll see Divine do unspeakable things. You will. Um, you will. And, and also, I, again, given the, the age we're in right now, you know, Divine was an amazing drag performer. I would say the first kind of mainstream drag performer who could do anything i mean one of the, the one of the fun things about hairspray is how straight quote unquote straight he is as the mom yes in yes. that movie yeah his wonderful sincere performance as edna turnblatt is what powered when mark shaman and and harvey firestein you know went to adapt that john waters film into a musical that's why edna turnblatt in that the centerpiece of that story, right? That she's the heart of that show. That's why she has so many great songs. It's it's on the back of Divine's amazing performance as Edna in the, the, the original live action version of Hairspray. But it's sort of pivot back. So again, you know, it's it, this this is you know uh, Howard going to Jeffrey Katzenberg, and you know, well, this is kind of my idea. You know, that we're we're basing Ursula on a drag queen, and 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 Jeffrey's like. That's nice. What else you got? Well, the, all the and all the designs until that point, Jim. We should tell people yep. were very thin, oh, kind of yeah. typical witch yeah. kind of yeah. character. He wanted something really mm-hmm. robust and curvy and kind of delicious, mm-hmm. and uh, it was quite a quite a shock to the system. For the longest time, 
Ursula was sort of modeled after a scorpion fish, but I want to say it's the animator who was assigned to Ursula, uh, Ruben Aquino, who saw, a, I, I want to say it was a piece of Disney live action of a, an octopus moving along the sea floor and the way the tentacles move. It's like, that's how Ursula should move. And that's how they sort of backed into her lower half being an octopus. But all right, so now it's like we need a big performer. We need and a big voice to go with the big performer. And so around the same time, Golden Girls is a huge hit produced by Disney. And playing the Dorothy Vornak character is, is B. Arthur, sitcom star from, from the 70s and 80s. And so B. Arthur works for us for on our hit sitcom. We should ask her to come do animated film for us. And great singing voice too. Uh, no, she great did. Well, voice. she had. I want to say she won a Tony for her work on Broadway uh, in the original production of Mame. But anyway, as Alan uh, Neweth shares in his wonderful book from 2003, Making Tunes, inside the most popular animated TV shows and movies, he told the story of when they took. The script to be Arthur. So they, they reach out to her agent. And as Alan explains, of course, what Musker and Clemens hadn't counted on was that Arthur's agent would roadblock their attempts to contact the sitcom star. Her agent, I guess, read the script and somewhere in her mind, uh, it came across as if we were saying that B. Arthur was a witch. And I said, I don't even think she they gave it to her. So now they start working their way through other TV favorites. You know, just figuring, okay, so Ron and John go to Nancy Marchand. She played Tony Soprano's mom, Livia, on The Sopranos. Uh, Charlotte Ray, who played Mrs. Garrett on in Facts of Life. And also Roseanne? She-Devil, Jim. I know you're a big She-Devil guy, I, I, so I, I, I could see it. I, lo yeah. I love them all. I love them all. Okay, <laughs> but this is Ron and John doing this, where on the other hand, Howard Ashman, having come from theater, his initial idea after B. Arthur turned it down was Joan Collins. But when he couldn't convince Disney Press to get behind that idea either, he then moved to his next choice, which Broadway veteran Elaine Stritch, mostly known these days. She was the original company of, of Stephen Sondheim's company. She was the woman who debuted the song Here's to the Ladies Who Lunch. And... Ron Clements goes on to say, we like Charlotte Ray, and Howard was totally gung-ho for Elaine Stritch. So they have a second round of auditions where both Elaine and Charlotte do the song. And in the end, Elaine won out because her take on Ursula was, was kind of this boozy witch, which everybody thought was hysterical. So they start doing two weeks of recordings with Elaine. And is this is interesting. During this time, Elaine is a tall, thin woman, so they actually reverted to a kind of a tall, thin Ursula, a, a, a thin, regal-looking sea witch. Boo! Well, now what's, Sorry, what's interesting boo. is they, they model her after manta ray, so she kind of has a cape. But the problem was evidently that Elaine at this time was having some substance abuse issues and she just was not capable of taking direction from from Howard and when it came down to it she couldn't evidently record the the song at the tempo that Howard wanted to do it and deliver the sort of performance that Howard was looking for so after two weeks they let her go and it was only then after holding another round of auditions 
that Pat Carroll gets a hold of the material and she describes, you know, I'm, I'm reading the script and it's like, oh my God, this is going to be wonderful. And then she listens to the music. It's like, oh my God, this is like a Broadway score. And it's like, yes, whatever you want me to do. Yes. You know? And so I, I tell you the Pat Carroll story because Melissa McCartney just told this amazing story. She's in New York getting her career started as an actress. And, and of course, when, when you're starting out, you have to have a day job. And what Melissa had as the day job was she was, she was a nanny. And she took care of two very small little girls who every night when it was time to go to bed, they wanted to watch just one movie. And of course, that movie was The Little Mermaid. And the interesting thing is to hear Melissa talk that was fine because while she was watching Little Mermaid, she got to listen to Pat Carroll's performance as Ursula and got to see Ruben Aquino's animation uh, of The Sea Witch. And it just, it, through the hundreds of, of multiple screenings of this film, it got burned into her, her cerebral cortex. And again, this, this also says a lot about Melissa McCartney. Did you hear about who else really, really, really wanted to play Ursula in this Rob Marshall movie? No, who? Lizzo. Supposedly, Lizzo went so far as to get made up as Ursula, shoot a video where she performed Poor Unfortunate Souls. And Disney, for whatever reason, went with Melissa McCartney. Or McCarthy. And then, you know, only after they wrapped the film did somebody tell... Melissa, that Lizzo had also gone to the role. And it turns out Miss McCarthy is a huge fan of Lizzo. And and evidently her response was, she auditioned for this. How the hell did I end up with this part? You know, Lizzo should have been Ursula. So I just, I, I love that she said that. They said, we'll put her in the Mandalorian. <laughs> She'll be Jack Black's wife. There'll be some kind of robot uprising. Forget about it. Did you see... How she got that part that there was the she tweeted out herself sort of lying in a bed surrounded by baby Yoda Grogu products that that evidently she'd bought every single one of them on the planet. And the people at Lucasfilm like reached out the day after that went on Twitter. It's like, hey, you want to come be on The Mandalorian? Sounds like you're looking for McDonald's toys. It, it does. It does. We're, we're all obsessive idiots. What can I tell you? So, <laughs> But on the other hand, folks, Mr. Taylor, his obsession is the Mission Impossible movies. And he's turned that into, along with, with the help of Charles Hood, an amazing series of shows, the, the, the Light Diffuse podcast. And, and seriously, folks, if you're not listening to the show, you are missing out on so much amazing Hollywood history, so many amazing behind-the-scenes stories, and, and you walk away with so much stronger appreciation for the Mission Impossible films, likewise the John Wick films, and our two, uh, you know, Top Gun films uh, so far. And is there any talk of a, a Top Gun 3? Oh, I'm sure people are talking about it. Whether or not it'll happen, Jim, that's the big okay. that's the big question. Okay, well, but. well. anyway, back to, to the Light Diffuse podcast. I know we are in the big march up to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So what's on the show this week? Well, you'll actually love this week, Jim, mm -hmm. uh, is our the first part of a two-part episode with Brian Burke, who produced Ghost Protocol mm -hmm. and Rogue Nation and ran mm -hmm. 
Bad Robot for many years. Oh. So he has got some great stories about working with Brad, mm-hmm. working with Tom, mm-hmm. the beginnings of the fruitful partnership with Macquarie. It's really great. Mm. So um, really, really good episodes. That's this week and next week. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Can't wait. Uh, and we have a couple of episodes coming up here uh, on Jim Hill Media uh, you might want to listen to. Uh, just did a new Disney dish with Lentesta and want to also point out uh, right after we recorded next week's episode, um, we also did a Bandcamp show where, where Len and I were talking about the Galactic Star Cruiser and our impressions of our, our event that's well worth a listen. Also... Just recorded uh, a brand new Mud with Aaron, uh, and we're getting ready to do a new Looking at Lucasfilm Brand Gone. So lots of new shows coming your way. So I tell you what, folks, if you could do Mr. Taylor and I a favor, if you get head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine-tuning, but also Light the Fuse, that would be great. Uh, likewise, if you really, really liked what you heard here tonight, if you want to go over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool. But at the same time, we talked at the top of today's show about the tweet that Drew put out with his impressions of uh, Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. So can you tell the nice folks where, if they want to get that sort of material, where they can find you on social media, Drew? Yeah, Drew Taylor at, on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And somebody reached out and said, why are you always so hard on Twitter? Mm-hmm. To which I point, uh, it's a dumpster fire, and just this week we saw just how much of a dumpster fire yeah. it was. I won't even talk about I, what happened. It, but yeah, that, 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 that's true. That's true. Anyway, where can people find you, Jim? Where can people find you? Well, I, too, am still <laughs> yeah, still, at the, still at the dumpster fire. I'm on Twitter. Uh, likewise, over at Instagram uh, as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And... Okay, folks, so we promised Mr. Taylor we'd, we'd, we'd get out here early. We didn't. But but on the other hand, he, get, he in theory gets a couple of days off. So, Drew, you know, thanks for all the hard work. And, again, the lovely stories over the wrap. Well worth checking out. And uh, Mr. Taylor and I will be back with a new fine-tuning next week. So, till then, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.